Next month, second week of this series, if you're new to the church or just jumping in with us, apologetics is a fancy word. It comes from a Greek term, apologia, and what we're talking about this month is the defense of Christianity, its worldview claims, its truth claims, its historical claims, and how to articulate that to people of different faiths and backgrounds in their own particular worldviews. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Michael Brown. He will be talking about Jewish objections to Jesus. Uh, I could go on about the numerous books, articles he's written. He has a radio show, tons of resources. Some of them are available outside after the service, but uh, I wanted, wanted to introduce him by saying how I, telling you how I first heard of him. I haven't told him, I haven't talked talk to him about this, but uh, if you're like me, what you do for fun is like you watch theology and history lectures online. It's like what you do on your day off. Um, and in one of the kind of YouTube will recommend something, I forget who I was watching, but it was a, a debate between Dr. James White, who's a theologian apologist and incredible debater, and he was debating Dr. Michael Brown. And James White, if you, if you, you probably don't know him, but he's one of those dudes where, like, even if you disagree with him, you, did, you won't want to, like, debate him because he'd probably just, he's just one of those, guy, you know, dudes that's just sharp and on top of it. And he, even when he's wrong, you're going, like, this guy can probably make me look wrong. And uh, I'd never heard of Dr. Michael Brown, and I was going, oh, man, uh, he's going to watch this. It's probably going to be another slaughter. And it was like, two heavyweight giants just going back and forth at it, and it was so good, and so that was my first introduction to you, so then I watched, started watching some lectures and some, some things for there, so uh, it was my pleasure to in- introduce a heavyweight theological giant, Dr. Michael Brown. Well, it's uh, great to be with you this morning, and as I was telling Pastor Isaac, on the way in, uh, it's not often that I get asked to address answering Jewish objections to Jesus on a Sunday morning. So here we are doing it. Pastor Isaac doesn't know how I first met him. I used to have dreads and I was looking online about how to get dreads, li- no, not, not actually, not actually what happened. However, however, God saved me when I was, no, no, I, you jumped to con- wrong conclusion there. Uh, God saved me in 1971 when I was a heroin-shooting, LSD-using, long-haired hippie rock drummer. So that's as close as I got to, uh, to dreads. But uh, a few years later, when my wife Nancy saw a picture of me, because she didn't know me before I was saved, we met at 19. I was already a believer. She was a hardcore Jewish atheist, actually. And God saved her. And then I, she saw an old picture of me from my hippie rebel days, and she started laughing. I said, you're laughing because I look like a woman. She said, no, I'm laughing because you look like an ugly woman. Anyway, that's... <laughs> so we're going to open up a mega important topic today, but something that's really interesting. Um, I preach and teach around the world, and as Pastor Isaac mentioned, I have a daily radio show. We're on TV as well. So we're in lots of different circles, but I often teach when schedule allows at different seminaries. As a visiting or an adjunct professor, I've got a doctorate in Semitic languages from New York University, and I'm often asked to teach at different seminaries, and I'm often asked to teach on Jewish apologetics. And what I find absolutely fascinating, even when I speak at some of the top apologetic schools in the world, 
as they have great courses and whole programs on, on dealing with atheism and dealing with scientific objections and philosophical objections and Islamic objections, but they don't have a single class on Jewish apologetics. And, and you think that would be the one thing that everyone should have and should start with. So all we're gonna do today is whet your appetite and lay some foundations and point you in the right direction and hopefully create a greater desire in your heart to see the lost sheep of the house of Israel come to recognize their Messiah. So Father, we pray for grace on these words today, for spiritual and intellectual penetration, for lives to be saved, and even in this region, for a greater harvest of Jewish souls. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter one, verse 16, is a very well-known passage. There, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Greek, then for the Gentile. Paul was not just saying that historically, the gospel first came to the Jews and then it goes to the Gentiles, but Paul is saying by way of divine priority, by way of divine plan, the gospel is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. When we get into the second chapter of Romans, we see that Paul speaks about how blessing comes to first the Jew, then the Gentile, and judgment comes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. In other words, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, were the ones through whom God revealed himself. It, it was Israelite prophets and Israelite leaders, Jesus himself and the apostles themselves all being for the people of Israel, being Jewish. So the message starts with them. And when we get into the book of Acts, we see that Paul, who was called as an apostle to the Gentiles, would first go and speak in synagogues. Why? Because this was a Jewish message about the Jewish Messiah. And so in Acts 13, he speaks in the synagogue. When the Jewish people reject him, he says, we go to the Gentiles. He just meant in that city. He didn't mean we no longer go to Jews because when you get to Acts 18 in Corinth, where does he start? He starts in the synagogue because this was a Jewish message about the Jewish Messiah. In fact, the big controversy in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, was this. Can you be a Gentile and follow the Jewish Messiah or do you have to become Jewish? Whereas the perception through the centuries has been that if a Jew follows Jesus, he's no longer Jewish. Or that for a Jew to be a follower of Jesus, he has to live like a Gentile. And if he still lives like a Jew, something is suspect. That's how much things got turned completely upside down. Uh, let, me, let me present it like this. Most of you would agree with this scenario. Saul of Tarsus was a Jewish man who was persecuting Christians. Then he had a vision of Jesus, and he himself converted to Christianity and became known as Paul. So Saul, Jew, old, bad, Paul, Christian, new, good. Actually, it's not accurate. Saul of Tarsus was a Jewish man persecuting fellow Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah. There was no such thing as Christian then. The term didn't come up until Acts chapter 11 and Saul of Tarsus meets the Messiah in Acts chapter nine. And he did not convert to Christianity, rather as a Jew, he recognized Jesus as the Messiah. Oh, it goes one step further. 
From birth, as a Jewish man born in a Greek city, he would have had two names. He would have had a Hebrew name, Shaul, Saul, and he would have had a Greek name, Paulus, Paul. So he was always Saul, Paul. And in the book of Acts, he continues to be called Saul right up through Acts 13. And then when he is sent to the Gentiles, he goes by his Greek name, Paul. So a lot of ways of thinking we have are really not according to Scripture. And what's happened is that the Jesus who has been presented to Jewish people through the centuries often does not resemble Jesus the Jew of Scripture. Remember, he was a rabbi, not a reverend. His name, his Hebrew name is Yeshua. Jesus is just the way we say it in English, coming from the Greek to the Latin, etc. His mother's name was not Mary. His mother's name was Miriam, as surely as Moses' sister's name was Miriam. And his disciples had names like Yaakov and Yochanan and Matai and Toma. These were Jewish men that were following the Jewish Messiah. And Yeshua did not come into the world to start a new religion called Christianity as much as he came into the world to fulfill what was written in Moses and the prophets. What happened, though, was that the church failed to heed Paul's warning in Romans 11, and it got disconnected from its roots, and it became arrogant against the Jewish branches, and it proclaimed, we are the new Israel, and God is finished with the old Israel, and over a period of time, Christians, professing Christians, began to persecute Jewish people. I was in Israel last in May, and we were doing some outreach and interaction among religious Jews. And as I spoke with them, we told them we were doing some footage that was going to air on Christian TV, and I wanted them to explain to Christians what they believed and why. And when I asked, well, is it possible when the Messiah comes that it will actually be Yeshua, that it will be Jesus? And there were a couple, you know, open to the possibility, and who knows, and, you know, very much wanting everyone to work together. But, but otherwise, overwhelmingly, no, of course not. Why not? Because Jesus takes us straight to Auschwitz. In other words, in Jewish thinking, in Jewish minds, Jesus and the Holocaust are directly associated. And when they think of Christian history, they think of the Holocaust, they think of the Crusades, they think of Inquisition. As one rabbi said to me many years ago, he said, Mike, I could, I could sail off in a ship in an ocean of Jewish blood that's been shed in Jesus' name. This is one reason that so many Jewish people have a hard time believing in Jesus. Yes, I fully understand that there were Jewish leaders in Jesus' day who rejected him just because they rejected him, whether they were jealous over power, whether they were unbelieving, whatever it was, whether they cared about the praise of man more than the praise of God, they rejected him. I understand that. The national leadership ultimately rejected him, although multitudes of Jewish people followed him as the Gospels recount and as Acts recounts. I understand, though, that there has always been Jewish rejection of Jesus, but there are two sides to it. As church history went on and Jesus was increasingly turned into a European, Caucasian, Christian leader, founder of a new religion, he seemed more and more foreign to the Jewish people. And as Christians persecuted Jews in Jesus' name, crusaders offering them baptism or death, Martin Luther originally having a very gentle heart to the Jews and then turning violently against them, 
and saying that their synagogue should be set on fire and their rabbis forbidden to teach under penalty of death. This is what many Jews know in terms of church history. I was speaking more than once to church historians, seminary professors who forget more in one day about church history than I've learned in my life. I mean, brilliant, great scholars. And when I asked them, so during your church history classes, when do you talk about anti-Semitism in Christian history? When you do your whole seminar on Luther, when do you talk about his Jew hatred and so on and so forth? They, they look at me sheepishly and say, well, we, we don't cover that. It's quite amazing. As the Catholic scholar Edward Flannery said, the, the very pages of history that Jews have memorized, Christians have torn out of their books. So there is this genuine, this general feeling that Jesus is not for Jews. He's okay for the Goyim, for the Gentiles, for others, but he's not for Jews. If I ask most of you here, why don't you believe in Muhammad? You'd say, well, we're, we're Christians. We don't believe in Muhammad. If I ask you, well, how much do you know of the life of Muhammad? You say, well, very little. How much have you studied the Quran? Very little. But we don't need to. We're Christians. We don't believe in him. That's the way Jews look at Jesus. Well, we're Jews. We don't believe in him. So the very first hurdle that has to be overcome is to help Jewish people know that Jesus himself is Jewish. In, in fact, there's the Jewish joke, how do we know that Jesus was Jewish? Well, there are four ways. First, he went to his father's business, and second, he was unmarried at 30, and third, he thought his mother was a virgin, and fourth, his mother thought he was God. Uh, when I came to faith in 71, 72, I witnessed everybody. I shared the gospel with everybody. And, and then I started, I was getting in the word day and night, memorizing scripture. I got to the point of memorizing 20 verses a day. And I didn't, I didn't have all the compassion and all the wisdom. But if you're going to argue with me, I'd come with machine gun verses, you know, just boom, 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 and mow you down. So I come home from high school one day, and there's a woman walking away from our house. Turns out she's a Jewish Jehovah's Witness. And uh, of course, I waited, you know, I looked for moments like that, people from cults and other things, you know, just perfect. So she begins to throw her arguments at me, and I bam, 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 hit with my scriptures. You know, she gives me one verse, I give her three or five back. But contrary to other Jehovah's Witnesses I had talked to, you could tell it was throwing her. But she heard what I was saying, and, and she listened, and it shocked her a little. And over a period of months, she ended up leaving Kingdom Hall and recognizing the, the error of, of Jehovah's Witnesses. And as I got to know her better, I, I said to her, so, so what, did my, what did my mom say when you went to talk to her? And my mom was not religious at all. And, and she said, well, she told me, I'm not really interested in religion. Wait for my son to come home. <laughs> she said, he'll convert you. He converts everybody. <laughs> Jewish moms. And then towards the end of her life, she, she died less than two years ago. And, and she was in, in not quite a nursing home, but something close to it. One of the nurses would come walking out, and I'd come walking in. She goes, are you Dr. Brown? I mean, I was famous. She'd never heard of me before, but just being in with my mom, she goes, oh, I've got to listen to your radio show. So Jewish moms. Okay, but that's just an aside there. All right. <clears throat> so as, as I came to faith, and then I began to interact with rabbis, and then I began to be challenged. 
So obviously the challenge, we don't know anything. Who, do you, who are you to talk to us? You know, we've been studying this all our lives and we learned it from our father, we learned it from his father all the way back to Moses. And it's true that if you talk to a religious Jew, so I'm talking about a, a religious Jew and an Orthodox Jew, man wearing the yarmulke, probably with a beard or you know, black coat, that kind of thing. Yes, that person will know a ton that you don't know. That's absolutely true. And, and yes, you will be ill-equipped to answer most of their objections, but the vast majority of American Jews are not religious. You may have this mindset, oh, you're Jewish, you know a lot. They are not religious. 90% of American Jews are not Orthodox. The vast majority of them do not attend Shabbat services, Sabbath services, and observe the Sabbath faithfully. Many of them do not observe the dietary laws. Many of them are like nominal Christians. You know, some of you grew up like this. You went to church Easter and Christmas. That's how some of them are with the high holidays in Judaism. You, in that case, will know the scriptures much better than the average Jew you meet in America. Just be aware of that. You know, some, some people just think because you're Jewish, you know the Bible. So I got saved, right? Remember, I, I was a heavy drug user. In high school, they used to call me drug bear and iron man because I could take these massive quantities of drugs and you know, famous for all the hallucinogenics I would do. And, you know, people would think, well, you're Jewish, you could, you know, you know, Mike's Jewish. He's got insight into it. Yeah, if you went to the book of Revelation and you show me some beast with seven heads and ten horns, yeah, I saw that tripping. Yeah, I, I, could, I, I saw that. Yeah, I, I could give you more background about that verse. I didn't know the Bible. So don't be intimidated by the fact someone's Jewish. Understand that there will be this gut-level mentality, Jesus is not for us. We're Jews, Jesus is not for us. And that's where you need to just understand the basics. No, actually, to repeat, he was, he was a rabbi, not a rabbi. You know his name was Yeshua? You know his mother's name was Miriam? How, how many Jews even know that Christ is the Greek way of saying Messiah? I have Jewish friends, when they came to faith, they thought that Jesus was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. <laughs> how would you know otherwise? Right? I'm Michael Brown, he's Jesus Christ. How would you know otherwise? You're Isaac Serrano, this is, how would you know otherwise? So many people don't understand, though Christ was a title, Messiah, Yeshua the Messiah. So, so, so just think of this. I'm talking to you about Jesus Christ, the Son of Mary. That doesn't sound really Jewish, does it? Can I talk to you about Yeshua the Messiah, Miriam's son? Oh, it sounds a little different now. And how about if we all read for a moment from the letter of Jacob? You say, what's that? Well, it's James in English, but it's Jacob in Greek. Letter of Jacob. Let's read from the letter of Judah. What's that? Well, it's Jude in English, but it's Judah in Greek. These were Jewish men writing Jewish letters. And, and Jacob in particular writing to other Jewish believers. So whatever you can do to help Jewish people understand the Jewishness of Jesus, to understand, hey, he came first for you. And, and then hang on, it goes even further. We don't have time to get into it in this setting but we can demonstrate from scriptures in the Gospels and Acts that Yeshua will not return until his Jewish people welcome him back in Jerusalem. As he says at the end of Matthew 23, in a word of judgment on Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you say, Baruch haba blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Meaning we welcome you, King Messiah. So there's even a sense where there is a need 
for Jewish people. Just like we, we bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and the nations must hear, the Jewish people must hear as well. This is a divine imperative. Yeshua will not come back until his own people welcome him. So we have to overcome this obstacle of Jesus is not for Jews. Jesus is the, the head of some new foreign religion. And that's pretty simple to overcome by just knowing the basic facts, these things that I've just shared. But then there's history. There's a history of persecution of Jesus, a persecution of Jews in Jesus' name. And, and you might say, yeah, yeah, but anyone that killed a Jew in Jesus' name was not a true Christian. Well, how do you know the difference between a true Christian and a false Christian when you're on the outside? You know, it's just like Muslim protesting. Well, Muslim terrorists, they're not really Muslims. We say, I don't know, I suspect the whole religion. We have questions about it. That's how Jews look at things as well. And we can't undo history. And, and it doesn't make good sense to minimize it or deny it. The, the best-selling book I've ever written, the most translated book, is called Our Hands Are Stained with Blood, which tells the story of Christian persecution of Jews through history. And you'd be shocked sometimes to read some of the names of those involved. The best thing to do is, number one, be a genuine friend and show genuine love. Love covers a multitude of sins. And remember, Jews are people like anybody else. Friendship, genuine love, <clears throat> praying for people, having a real testimony, demonstrating the reality of forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> All these things go a long way. The people that led me to the Lord <clears throat> prayed for me, and as they prayed, the Holy Spirit convicted me of sin, and through friendship and perseverance, I got saved. I didn't know Jewish objections to Jesus at that point. I didn't know all the reasons why Jews don't believe. That I found out afterwards when I started to talk to the rabbis. So treat Jewish people like anybody else. And as you're a genuine friend, you can say, look, I am so sorry for what professing Christians did to your people through history. But that's a complete violation of the teaching of Jesus. That's the exact opposite of who he is and what he stood for. And, and people like me, we'd never hurt you. You see that. This is a Christian testimony. Evangelical Christian love and support for Israel today has gone a long way to undo some of the horrors of church history. So you acknowledge it. You ask forgiveness for, for it and, and say, as a, as a true Christian, I repudiate what these others have done. Let me show you what Christian love really is. That goes a long, long way to undoing what's happened in the past. Then you've got the issue of theological objections. And as I broke these down, I have a five-volume series on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. Each volume stands by itself, but five volumes, 1,500 pages, covering the major objections. We've got some copies outside as well. I broke the objections down into six major categories. First, the general objections, which are all along the ways of I'm a Jew and Jews don't believe in Jesus and Jesus is not for the Jews, etc., etc. And then the second one, the historical objections, church history and things like that. And also, if the Messiah is Jesus, then why isn't there peace on earth? We know when the Messiah comes, there'll be peace. There's no peace, therefore he's not the Messiah. Major objections. So we focus on historical, but then the next ones are theological. Theological. Every day, twice a, a day, with tremendous concentration, a Jew recites the Shema, the words from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, 
our God, the Lord, is one. And they meditate on the oneness of God. And anything that challenges the oneness of God is something that they must repudiate. They, they would joyfully die rather than repudiate the oneness of God. Yet Christians teach a trinity, which to Jews sounds like three gods. How do we overcome that? How do we overcome this idea that we worship other gods? Or, Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man, but we're saying that Jesus is God. So how can that be? That's the, the worst thing of all, making a man into a God or, or God into a man. These are massive theological objections. And, and there are only some, there, there are many others as well. How do we overcome these? Well, what we do is we demonstrate according to the Hebrew Bible, according to the Old Testament, because that we have in common with our Jewish friends. We demonstrate that God is one. We, we emphasize there's one God and one God only, but he is complex in his unity. We open up from the scriptures how he is seen and yet unseen, how he is touchable and yet untouchable. Do you know that the New Testament, for example, John 1, 1 Timothy 6, the New Testament says no one has ever seen God? No one can see God? This is the New Testament. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. 1 Timothy 6, he dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen him or, or, or can see him. And yet, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And yet, you have numerous examples in the Old Testament, like Exodus 24, where, where Moses and Aaron and Nadav and Avihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, it says they saw the God of Israel. Yet elsewhere, we read, if you see him, you die. So who'd they see? So we try to emphasize that, that God is transcendent, he's out there, he's untouchable, and yet he's imminent, he's right here. He's invisible, no one's ever seen him, and yet he's seen. He fills the universe, he sits enthroned in heaven, and yet he works among us. How? Because he's complex in his unity. He's one God revealed as Father, who's the creator and source of all things, whom no one has ever seen or can see, the Son who reveals him, and the Spirit who works among us. And, and then we begin to open up certain Jewish traditions, some of the traditions that are, are found in rabbinic literature, the ancient writings of the rabbis, and show how there are even parallel thoughts there that build bridges from rabbinic thought into New Testament thought. You say, that's a, that's a lot to grasp. Yeah, understood, understood. We're, we're introducing things and whetting your appetite. But I want you to know what will come up, the types of things that come up. And, and what you need to know is there are answers, and here's where I can go to get more. You know, when, when I came to faith, I didn't know other educated Jewish believers in Jesus. I began to meet Christian scholars, and they were brilliant, but they weren't sensitive to Jewish objections. And the Jewish believers I knew were great evangelists and loved the Lord and passed out tracts, but they didn't have a lot of educational depth. So when I got challenged by the rabbis, it was very challenging. Here were very sincere men, very learned, knew Hebrew since they were children. I could barely read it. So I was deeply challenged, and God moved on me to write this series of books and, and to debate rabbis, and, and, and I knew when I started doing public debates, the first reason I was doing them was not for outreach to non-believing Jews, but to strengthen believing Jews. 
that when we talk about apologetics, it has, it has two purposes. One is to reach the lost, but another is to strengthen the saved, strengthen believers. And, and I'm not a scientist, I'm not a philosopher, but I know there are brilliant Christians who are scientists and brilliant Christians who are philosophers, so when I get hit with certain objections, I just need to know somebody has the answers. And then I'm good with that, and I can point seeking people to the resources. The same with this. You are not, in one service, suddenly going to understand all the major objections, Jewish objections to Jesus, and have answers. In fact, when I do seminary classes, I've taught you know, 25, 30-hour seminary classes on Jewish apologetics, and all it is is, is intro. All it is is intro. Our 1,500 pages barely covers it, okay? But what you need to know is, here are the types of objections and issues that will come up, and there are good, solid answers, and here's where we can go to get more info. And I'll give you some internet resources before we're done. All right, so the first thing, general objections, I'm a Jew, I don't believe in Jesus. We overcome that by emphasizing the Jewishness of the Messiah and how the most Jewish thing a person can do is follow him as Messiah. Second thing, the historical objections. The way the church has often treated Jewish people and the idea that if Jesus is the Messiah, there'll be peace on earth. So we counter the historical objections by acknowledging that often professing Christians have mistreated Jews, we renounce it, and we demonstrate true Christian love, and we tell them that this is totally contrary to what Yeshua taught and modeled. And as for the idea that the Messiah will bring peace on earth, you say, absolutely true, but the scriptures indicate that his mission is in two phases that he had to come and start his mission before the second temple was destroyed almost 2,000 years ago, die for our sins and rise from the dead. Now that message spreads through the world, and at the end, he will come and establish peace on earth. It's not either or, it's both and. When we get to theological objections, and again, there are many, what we want to do our best to do is go back to the Hebrew Scriptures. Yes, of course, you can quote New Testament, but you you want to quote something that a Jewish person will recognize, and you want to show them how the God of Israel, one God, is complex in his unity. And what Christians teach on that just takes these biblical truths a little further and makes them a little more clear. There are many, many other objections that come up, and major objections have to do with atonement. Jews would say, while the temple is standing, Blood sacrifices are important, but when we don't have the temple, we have repentance and prayer and other means of atonement. And anyway, we don't need the blood of a man. And we respond by showing how blood atonement is central and foundational in the Bible, that without blood atonement, something is seriously missing. And then we open up a Jewish teaching. This is found in Jewish tradition, that the death of the righteous atones for the sins of the generation. That someone suffering apparently unjustly has thereby taken the penalty of the suffering of others on his shoulders. We open them up, we go to passages like Isaiah 53 and we say, hey, this is what the Messiah did. He died for our sins. This is a Jewish concept. So general objections, historical objections, theological objections, And then, fourth, objections based on messianic prophecy. We'll be told that the New Testament writers misquoted prophecies from the Old Testament. We'll be told that they misinterpreted them, 
to make them look like it was Jesus. Or they rewrote things in the New Testament to make Jesus fit the prophecies. I've, I've often heard this illustration used that a man was walking through the woods and, and noticed uh, on, on a tree there was a bullseye target painted and an arrow, boom, right smack in the middle of the bullseye. And thought, that was some shot. Goes down a little further, there's another tree with a target on it, and bulls, boom, pert, right smack in the middle of the bullseye. Another arrow. This is the best marksmanship I've ever seen. Third tree, fourth tree. I mean, he said, I gotta meet this guy. And he finally meets the marksman. He sees the guy with the arrow about to shoot. He says, well, how do you do it? Every shot's perfect. He goes, oh, it's easy. He said, I stand back, I shoot at the tree, and then I draw the target around it. <laughs> that's the Jewish answer. You see, that's all it is, is that they, they, they drew the, the, the target and the bullseye around Jesus. And what we show them is that there are prophecies spoken centuries in advance that you could not orchestrate, that you could not plan out, that you could not make happen. The fact that prophecies spoke of the Messiah being rejected by his own people and then becoming a light to the nations of the world so that the ends of the earth would follow him, you can't just manufacture that. You can't just make that happen. So we, we open things up in that way to show the integrity of the prophecies and, and how the New Testament writers fairly and rightly understood them. We also show that sometimes New Testament writers are just quoting things to illustrate a point not necessarily as a direct fulfillment. Plays on words and things like that, just as happens in the Hebrew Bible. Then there are objections based on the New Testament itself. Well, the genealogies of Jesus are hopelessly contradictory. Or Paul contradicts Jesus. Or what the New Testament teaches is impossible or un-Jewish. A whole new set of objections that are raised there. And when we come to that, what we do is, is we show first how hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses in the New Testament are quoting from the Old. How much of it is intertwined? You know, I had Pastor Andy Stanley on the radio show a few weeks ago to clarify some remarks he had made that created a, a firestorm where he had talked about the need for Christians to, quote, unhitch from the Old Testament. And he said, yeah, it was the wrong word to use, and he was trying to say something differently. It, it came out different than what he was trying to, to convey. He was trying to convey that Jesus was doing something new, and there had to be a breaking with an old way of thinking to embrace what he was doing. But when we interacted on it, when I wrote an article very, very critical of, of what he had said, you know, sent it to him first and then, and then published it afterwards, one of the things I emphasized was, was that so much of the New Testament is built on the old. Uh, some scholars estimate that out of a little over 400 verses in the book of Revelation, almost 300 of them borrow imagery from the Old Testament. And when you, when you build the second story of a house, you don't knock out the first story, do you? So, so these things are foundationally important. We show the Jewishness of the New Testament. We, we clarify apparent contradictions with the genealogies by going back to genealogies in the Old Testament and learning from those and then coming back to the New. In other words, there are answers for those who are genuinely looking for the truth. 
And the last set of objections is traditional. In other words, a religious Jew believes that when God gave Moses on Mount Sinai the law, that he not only gave him a written law, but he gave him an oral law. For example, it says, don't do any work on the Sabbath. Whoever does work will be put to death, but it never defines what work is. So traditional Jews believe that on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the oral explanation for the law, which has then been passed on through generations of Jews, and then finally in the centuries after the time of Jesus was written down in rabbinic literature known as the Mishnah and the Talmud and things like that. So a Jew would say, I have a, an unbroken chain of tradition going all the way back to Moses. What do I need your Jesus for? What do I need your religion for? Plus, our traditions have preserved us through every kind of hellish thing. Our traditions have preserved us through all kinds of evil and, and, and people trying to wipe us out and destroy us, and, and here we are. And what we emphasize is, number one, it's God who preserved the Jewish people, not the Jewish people themselves and not even Jewish tradition. And more importantly, while we acknowledge that there have been various traditions that have been passed on through the centuries, what we point out is that the covenant God made in Scripture is based on the written word, the written word, the written word, the written word. And that's what we must go back to, and that's where the authority is. So I, I broke down these objections, six different objections into five books, answering Jewish objections to Jesus. And someone said to me, a Messianic Jew, many years ago said, well, why didn't you write the books on answering Jewish objections to Yeshua? And I said, because Jews don't have objections to Yeshua. They don't know who that is. They've never heard of that person. That's what we need to introduce. They have objections to Jesus, and this is what we need to unfold. Let me remind you, though, again, the average Jewish person you meet doesn't know most of this. The average Jewish person you meet is like anybody else, and they may be atheists. They may be into some kind of weird spiritual belief. They may be a practicing Buddhist, for all you know. They may be assimilated already, married to a Gentile. So your average Jew you're going to talk to does not know these things. However, if God begins to work in their lives and they genuinely begin to come to faith and their eyes are opened, sooner or later, they will be exposed to the objections. Sooner or later, they're going to get online and look into this and they'll start to see all these counter-missionary websites or Jews for Judaism websites or things like that. And in addition to that, they will maybe talk to a family member and you know how it is that when you begin to shift, suddenly your family gets very religious the other way, you know? And it happens. I mean, all the time, a Jewish person comes to faith, and now the family gets very upset, and now they want you to talk to the rabbi, and, and now the rabbis have all these resources as well. So almost inevitably, the objections come up. Almost inevitably. And if you can point them, say, hey, here's, here's a Jewish guy debating another Jewish guy about Jesus. Let him watch the debates. Let them see, oh, there are credible answers. Let them know about our resources. We have our website, askdrbrown.org. You should jot it down, askdrbrown.org. So every day we do a live stream of our radio broadcast. You can watch it on Facebook or YouTube. Uh, I normally write four or five articles every week dealing with political, cultural issues and things like that. All the crazy stuff happening in America, we're addressing it. I do have one policy, though one ministry policy, which is avoid controversy at all costs. No, just joking, just joking. <clears throat> so you'll get our articles. We, we put out five, six, seven new videos a week. 
very, very helpful teachings on different things. But when you go to askdrbrown.org, click on Jewish, and that'll take you to the Real Messiah website. And on the Real Messiah website, you can watch debates I've had with rabbis. On the Real Messiah website, you'll find a synopsis of uh, over 150 different objections. These six categories, over 150 objections, a synopsis, here's the objection, here's the answer, in writing, and many of them on video, in short form, all there. So you can dig in, and then you can refer to it. Just go to realmessiah.com. You have a question, just go there. And when they go there, they'll find these answers and these resources. So let me just tell you a quick story. It is sad but true that in Jewish history, we have been expelled from many countries. In America, we learn in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. But Jews learn in 1492, all non-baptized Jews were expelled from Spain. Sad but true. So Jews often deal with tragedy with humor. So story is told that the Pope in one country challenged the Jewish leaders and said, let's have a debate. You win the debate, you can stay. You lose the debate, you go. And the rabbi said, we're not going to do this. This is a setup. We're, we're dead. I mean, there's no way, there's no way we're, they're going to say we won. And none of them were willing to take the weight on their shoulders. There was a semi-literate street, street sweeper named Moshe. And he said, I'll debate the Pope. This is Moshe, you can barely read. He goes, I'll debate the Pope on one condition. What? No words are spoken. It's a silent debate. So the Pope agreed. And the day comes and the, the place is flooded. The Catholic cardinals and their regalia and the Catholic crowd. And the Jews over here, they're kind of cowering. They're afraid. And the debate begins and the Pope holds up three fingers. Moshe glares at him and holds up one and the Pope is shocked. Then the Pope takes his finger and makes a wide sweeping circle like this. Moshe looks right at him points to the ground, the Pope is shocked. And then the Pope carefully opens up a box with the bread and the wine pointing. Well, bread and the wine, there it is. And Moshe looks and doesn't take his eyes off, opens up a brown bag, takes out an apple. Pope says, that's it, you stay, Jews can stay, he's too good. You, you, you win, you can stay. So the Cardinals come to the Pope, they said, what happened? He said, he was just too good. I mean, first I sp held up three fingers to speak of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But then he, he said, but God is one. And, and, and then I said, yes, but, but he, he fills the whole universe. And then Moshe said, but he's right here among us. And, and then I took out the elements of communion, and he took out the apple to remind him of, the, of the Adam and Eve's sin. And he was just too good. So they come up to Moshe. Rabbi said, how'd you do it? He goes, it was easy. So what happened? He said, first, the Pope said, you Jews have three days to leave. And I said, not one of us is leaving. And then he said, you will leave this entire region. And I said, we're staying right here. They said, and then he goes, and then what? They said, and then? What do you mean, and then? Well, and then he goes, I don't know. He took out his lunch, I took out mine. Okay, so with that, you get a little tiny drop of a cup of an ocean of Jewish objections to Jesus. Remember, Jews are like everybody else. Prayer, genuine friendship, interaction, the power of the gospel will save and will transform. And we are trying to get Jewish people to come to the Jewish Messiah. 
If we can be of help to you, all the resources are there online, tons of them are free, and then get our books and other things that will be of real help to you, all right? Father, we pray for harvest. We pray, oh God, for salvation right in this region, friends, others, others through online relationships. May Jewish people come to know Jesus as the Messiah. In his name.